You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Um, If you would like to turn into your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. That's Luke chapter 18 verses 15 to 17. This will be our passage today. It's on page 1052 in the Church Bibles. Um, Let me read for you now, Luke chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. The little children and Jesus. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is the word of God. If um, It's worth me saying as well before Matt preaches that if English is your second language or you'd like to follow on with the sermon transcript, you can find that on the sidebar on the church website or if you type in City Church Manchester sermon transcript in Google. Thanks very much, Eric, and good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to City Church, and welcome to our continuing series uh, looking at the kingdom of God. Let me pray before we dive into this passage. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we have been able to gather together as, as one church body, as one community, seeking to be devoted to you, seeking to know you better. And there is no better way to know you than to hear your word taught and hear your voice speak to us. And so we pray that whoever we are or whatever circumstance we've come from today, we come here knowing that you are a good God who has called us uh, to know you, to enjoy you, to love and worship you personally. Amen. Well, let me ask you, let me ask you quite a a personal question, really. And, and the question is this. Would you describe yourself as a sorted person? Would you describe yourself as a sorted person? Hmm. What I mean is, do you consider yourself to be a strong, independent person who can take care of themselves and that other people should take seriously? I wonder if you, you would say yes for yourself. What I mean is, do you qualify for the approval of others? Do you qualify for the approval of others? Now, you may well be thinking, look, Matt, why should I care about the approval of others? I am strong, I am independent, and I should be taken seriously. But I might say to you here on a Sunday afternoon, yeah, but so many of your interactions all revolve around getting the approval of others. For example, you know, you you may well pour hours into your CV and your job applications uh, trying to communicate, look at me, look at what I've done, pick me. Or you may have spent years trying to impress your parents, even as adults, to say to them, look at what I've done, look what I've achieved, pick me. 
If you're married, you may have worked for years or months at your husband and your wife saying, look at all the things that I've done, even taking out the rubbish or sorting this out, sorting that. Look what I've done. Continue to pick me. Those of you who are on Christian dating websites, look at the hours that you spend writing up all of that description of yourself, making one statement, which is, look at all that I am, pick me. But you might turn to me and say, well, yeah, Matt, but look, you know, that's just the way the world is, isn't it? That's just the game that we play. We have to seek the approval of others. But that really doesn't shape my identity. It doesn't shape who I feel that I am. I have to keep it secret. This is what I offer to the world, but this is who I know I truly am inside. And so I might say to you back, yeah, but have you really done that? Have you really kept them absolutely separate? Have you really not bought the idea that you always need to prove yourself? Have you really not bought the idea that you always have to come with your hands full saying, pick me? Have you really not let the rejection of other people or the disapproval of other people get under your skin? Have you really achieved that? Does it really not hurt anymore when that happens? Does it really not make you think, I need to go again, I need to go harder and stronger, I need to be smarter, prettier, more impressive, more approvable? And you might look at me and say, all right then, perhaps I haven't, but what does it really matter? And I would say to you, off the back of a passage like this that Eric's just read to us, It really matters because the people who come to Jesus with hands full saying, look at what I've done, look at what I've achieved, therefore pick me. Before him, never get picked. And so I've got two points for us this afternoon and the first one's this, come to Jesus with messy hands. Come to Jesus with messy hands. Now, I often think that the Gospels could be accurately retitled Awkward Moments with Jesus. Okay, Awkward Moments with Jesus. Because I think these few short verses, verses 15 uh, through uh, 18 in our passage, are very, very awkward. It is a very awkward, dramatic scene. You may not think so at first reading with all these kids and Jesus, it sounds like. No, it's actually a very, very awkward scene. Let me describe it to you. You know, let me picture the scene. Imagine it in your mind's eye, if you will. And it's this. During a well-earned but brief break from his rigorous preaching tour, imagine Jesus is most likely catching his breath in a, in a kind of town square, something like that. Now, he's there, he's, he's relaxing a little bit, he's unwinding before they move on to the next town or village. And the disciples, we can imagine, as they did, would be stood around him a little bit like roadies 
after a, after a gig backstage. You know, a few of them are perhaps poring over maps. We should go this route, then this way, and that way we'll get there. Others of them are packing or repackaging um, their equipment, all of their belongings. Some other people have gone into the town to pick up some provisions for the journey. If it was modern day, if this passage was said in modern day, it would be like Jesus was sat right in the midst of flight cases and tech boxes all being ready to be shipped out. James and John would have popped around the corner to go and bring around the tour bus. And if it was modern day, it would be like amongst all of the hubbub backstage at the end of the gig, no one noticed that the stage door was left open. And sheepishly, perhaps, nervously, one at a time, maybe a few, but more and more, people start to walk through the door. And they see Jesus and they make an absolute beeline to him like a familiar face in the crowd. And then more come. And then more, all streaming through, going straight to Jesus. But the surprise is that they're not the usual adults of every shape and size looking for teaching or exorcism or healing. No, no, no. They're parents. They're parents with lots and lots of children. If this was modern day, it would not be like backstage at a kind of political conference. It would be like backstage at CBeebies. That's what we're talking about in this passage, backstage at CBeebies. And the issue is, with that type of crowd of babies and young infants, you cannot keep that crowd quiet. Before long, there is a baby that has not had its nap, and it is wailing its head off. And over here, there's a, there's a toddler who is uh, busily unpacking from the cases all of the stuff that's already been carefully uh, packaged, ready to go. Over here, perhaps, there is one little baby with a ruddy face and green snot pouring out of its nose, and it uses Jesus' tunic as a kind of napkin to wipe it clean. Another one, perhaps, has found Jesus' talk notes stashed in the corner and has found a great fun in putting them in their mouth, eating it. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Perhaps another toddler has found a nice corner beside Jesus to have a quiet wee whilst his parents' back is turned. It's kind of, you can imagine the scene with the, the children all around and this little child who's just done their business turns up to Jesus with hands open like this that can only mean one thing, pick me up. Why are all these parents bringing their children to Jesus? Well, it's most likely that they wanted Jesus to give their child a blessing. That is a, a prayer It was an ancient practice that just before the Day of Atonement, parents would bring their children to the high priest for this prayer or blessing. And now they've seen Jesus and they've taken the opportunity to come to Jesus for that blessing. And the disciples in our passage, they kind of act like grumpy bodyguards. Did you notice that? Perhaps one of the kids makes a wild grasp at Jesus' beard for a good old pull, and one of the disciples steps in and goes, no way, not on my watch. But then Jesus, rather than laughing it off, 
he turns to his disciples and rebukes them. You can imagine the crowd goes silent, perhaps the chatter ceases, the wailing baby even pauses for a moment. All eyes look to Jesus because Jesus makes a really startling point. You see, in a culture that thought children should be seen and not heard, in a culture where the approval was all about status and children were on the very bottom rung, in that cultural context, Jesus says, let me read to you verses 16 17. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. Jesus' startling point is that there is something about the way that children approach life. There is something a way that children approach Jesus that adults miss. And that gap, that thing that adults like me and you miss, is the very key to spiritual intimacy with God. Now, the context of this passage, I think, is, is very helpful because we're thinking, well, what could that possibly be? What is it that children could figure out that we adults can't? Well, if you turn back a couple of pages in your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verse 8, Jesus has just told a story where he is held up as a role model, a woman who was persistent in asking, just like a child wanting an ice cream. Jesus has said of this particular woman, that is how you should approach God. With unrestrained communication or prayer, that is the authentic mark of faith. And then in verse 9, a passage you were looking at last week, Jesus tells a story to those with a God-should-pick-me attitude because I'm so brilliant by saying to them, actually, it's not the righteous Pharisee who gets the approval of God, but it's actually the hated tax collector who looks like a toddler caught with their hand in the cookie jar and full of guilt and shame is bawling their eyes out. Jesus says, no, that person there, the tax collector is a truer example of authentic faith. And so you, you see, when it comes to this third passage, our passage this afternoon, it's meant to re-ink or underline or circle or highlight the single radical truth that the mark of authentic faith is knowing that you are approved by God simply because he loves you and not because you are useful. Isn't that interesting? Because he loves you, not because you are useful to him. There's a, often, I think, a hypocrisy in our culture where it's okay for adults to say that their entire self-worth is based on their achievements. But actually, if a child was to say, all of my self-worth and value is based on my next school report, we would go, no, that's not right. We would even probably say if the child was to say that, that, that's actually ugly or worrying. But this is the good news at the very heart of the gospel. We can come, whoever we are, to Jesus with messy hands. 
The one big thing that children instinctively get an A plus for, that we adults at best get a C minus, is that they come to Jesus. They come to the person that they think can be the most help or the most comfort, no matter whether they're coming for something small like a grazed knee or something embarrassingly huge like a full nappy. Children will come to the person that they think will help them or give them the most comfort just like that. Whereas we adults, we, and I think it's true of all of us, we neither think that we can come to Jesus and collapse in his arms when we are frustrated for a small thing like missing the bus or a big thing like that dirty secret that we hold on to for years that we would just die if anyone else knew that it existed. Either option, big or small, we as adults just do not feel that we can come. But children, they don't care. They go straight to him. Which is why Jesus says, you've got to be more like the children. Just come to me. However your life is, however messy, whatever you have done, just come. Now note here the radical difference between Christianity and every other faith. Because in all the other faith systems, your closeness to God, your intimacy with God is based upon, say, your observance of the pillars of Islam or the purity of your chakra or the um, balance of your karma or your rating on Uber or your credit score. Whatever it is you do to rate it, we believe collectively as a planet that the more you can do to show your brilliance, your worthiness, your achievement, the more that someone important like God will approve you, will welcome you, will draw you close. And yet Jesus says, no, it doesn't work like that. Whatever your mess, whatever your guilt, whatever your failings, whatever your embarrassment, whatever your inadequacies, just come. And be as welcome to God the Father as Jesus is to enter the very throne room of heaven. There was... Um, a number of years ago, there was a wedding in this very room, and my son Reuben was, was a, a kind of toddler at that stage, wandering around. And um, everyone was in their kind of wedding finery. Ladies were in you know, beautiful long uh, dresses, and uh, all the fellas were looking really smart. And the wedding ceremony had gone really well. The couple had both said, yes, you know, that's the achievement, isn't it? And then out back, uh, they had uh, all of the cakes set up, all of the cakes set up. And at this particular wedding, the cakes that they had had were of a particularly creamy, frosting nature with really fluorescent colors. And there was one particular cake that was like a bright neon blue in its kind of icing, frosting on the top. It was sumptuous. And Reuben, my son, who was a toddler, 
Oh, I mean, he was just having an absolute dream, having an absolute field day. Because one of the things that you can do when your dad is busy doing wedding stuff and your mum is elsewhere, you can have the run of the cakes and no one's going to tell you off. And so he had made himself very happy. And I remember he was right here, actually, towards, towards the front, and everyone's milling around and chatting. And his hands are full of frosting cake. You know, that neon blue stuff? You know, his hands are full. He's got a massive cake in one hand, but his other hand just caked in it. And then, just as toddlers do, their eyes attracted by, by something. Maybe Jackie, my wife, his mum, had come in at the back door. And just as toddlers do, they can see what they want and they just go for it without any sense of spatial awareness. And he must have seen, say, Jackie at the back there, through a gap that was only this big between the buttocks of two ladies in their finest wedding gowns. And he just went for it right through the gap And there he is, you know, cake in one hand, messy, frosted hand in the other, straight through that gap, smearing blue icing across the backsides of both of those ladies as he ran uh, towards his mum. He just went. He just went. And you look at that and you go, yeah, that's just kids, right? That's just kids. I just turn my back and pretend I didn't see it. That's the type of parenting that I, uh, I was known for doing. But there's something about kids, isn't there, where actually when they see the one that they love, the one that they care about, the one who can help, the one who can bring comfort, it doesn't matter if their hands are messy. It doesn't matter if there are obstacles in the way. They just go. And that's exactly the attitude where Jesus says to us as adults, where we're full of 101 excuses why we can't go, why it's not time, why I'm not in a place right now, why if, if he knew what was going on in my life, or if I could just get that sorted out, then I'll go. And Jesus says, no, as soon as you see me, come. With messy hands, just come. Well, if that's the first thing that we see that Jesus is, is saying from this passage, the second one is this, Come to Jesus with empty hands. That's our second and final point. Come to Jesus with empty hands. Now, artists throughout history have attempted to capture the the wondrous events of this passage. There's a particularly famous painting by Antoine uh, Anisio called Christ Blessing the Children. Do we have it up here? I don't think you can quite see it. Can you turn down the lights a little bit? There we go. You know, you've got a very kind of paley white Jesus. The children are coming. They're all very polite. You know, you could almost imagine the kind of gentleness of the scene right there, there behind. Everyone's looking over, kind of going, oh, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? That is not the scene that we have in this passage. That really does not capture it. Many have tried, but most have failed, because it really doesn't capture the awkwardness at the heart of this scene. It's right there in verse 16. We've just mentioned it previously. What does this passage not capture? What does painting not capture? That this passage underlines, it's this. Jesus gets angry. It is not a nice pastoral scene. That is not where this passage goes. 
And it's really important for us in the 21st century not to brush over Jesus' strong emotions, despite history's attempt to whitewash Jesus as some sort of benevolent lollipop man. That is not right. You see, if you follow the pattern, Jesus tends to show real anger to anyone who communicates to others that God demands that they can only approach him if you can persuade him that you are worthy. He gets really angry with anyone who teaches others that you can only approach God if your hands are full of achievements. And that's why Jesus gets mad at the Pharisees. And that's why Jesus now gets mad at the disciples. And that's why I think he would also, at times, at times, Be mad with me. Let me explain. Within these very few short verses is the very profound truth that every believer simultaneously wants to exhaustedly collapse into the arms of Jesus and yet also simultaneously tells themselves, your life is not that important, don't trouble the rabbi. Do you not find that in your own life? You just want to go to Jesus. There's something in you that just wants to go with all of your troubles and your exhaustion. But another part of you goes, don't go. Don't go. Don't trouble the rabbi. It's just not important enough. And places like Ephesians 4 or Romans chapter 6 speak of an internal battle within believers between your old self and your new gospel-rooted self. And the key battleground for that fight is answering the question. And this is the question. So listen to this. Do I need to come to Jesus with my hands full of worthy achievements in order for him to welcome me or not? Do I need to come to Jesus with my hands full of worthy achievements in order for him to welcome me or not? Now, theologically, many of us who have been believers a while will instinctively say, no, theologically, I know the answer is no. But functionally, I often say yes. And what's worse, what's worse, I can easily give the impression to others that unless you come to Jesus with a life that is gleaming of clean of sin, or if you only came to Jesus with more evidence of your service within the church, or if you only came to Jesus with more self-discipline evident in your life, well, then he would be more receptive to you. And because you don't, well, perhaps he might be a little bit deaf to your prayers today. Or perhaps you haven't, perhaps he'll be a little bit cold to your affections this month. Or because of your continuing failures, he'll perhaps be in this lifetime a little bit more selective over his forgiveness he offers you. Isn't that terrible? But isn't that how often many of us actually functionally live our lives as believers? Thinking that we have to come proving ourselves. Well, how do you become more like a a child? How do you approach Jesus with nothing to prove? Well, here's the thing. Often, on your own, 
you cannot empty your hand. Often, he has to empty them for us. Many years ago, I was in a, um, I was in a cafe in, in Vietnam, and all of a sudden, a guy uh, rocks up on a motorbike just outside the cafe. It was an outside cafe with chairs and tables. Uh, and he, uh, he, he knew my name. He darts off his bike. He pulls out a knife, and he's running straight towards me. And he's shouting at me, and his eyes are absolutely manic. And the other people are scattering. The, the shop owner is trying to kind of calm him down and, and to keep me separate. He wasn't interested in anyone else. He was coming after me. And the reason was this guy was actually a drug dealer who had been repeatedly coming uh, to where I lived and trying to offer, offer me drugs, and I had, had refused um, and had gone to the police, and he was furious about it. I just must have one of those faces, right? That I, you know, have, I have no idea why. He was furious. So he's, he's coming to, towards me, but he is totally out of his head, totally out of his mind. And the shopkeeper is prizing the violent instrument from his hand, taking it off him so he doesn't do himself, me, or anyone any damage, and basically scoots me off outside the back of the cafe uh, where I'll be safe and make sure that this guy is totally sat on. But the reason I tell you that is because... You know, you, you hear a story like that and you're thinking, oh, that would be, what a crazy situation to be there. What a situation where someone's having to prize something violent and dangerous from your hands in order to make sure that you are safe to yourself and those around you. Well, actually, the situation that we find ourselves on as Christians isn't so dissimilar to that drug addict. Often we find ourselves as believers, as people who are gripping hold of something that is utterly dangerous to ourselves and utterly dangerous to others, and we will not let it go. And so what the Lord Jesus does in his kindness is he prizes it from our hands, not as punishment, but as a kindness to us. Our problem is we grip onto things that enchant our imaginations, that capture our fantasies, and we just will not let them go because we think we need them, but they are the very things that stop us from coming to God open-handed. For example, we grip onto to ideas, you know, good things that suddenly become bad things. We grip onto ideas like, imagine the idea of never going to another wedding without a plus one. Or never turning up to an interview with an underdog CV. Or imagine never having to say no to an impulse purchase on Amazon One Click because you know you can't afford it. You see, we grip onto those shiny but dangerous fantasies tight to our hearts by saying, I will chase and I will bow down to anything that takes me closer to that dream. And I will despise and I will, will draw from anything that seems to get in my way. 
You see, hands that grip onto good things so tightly they become functional idols to us are dangerous because you cannot worship Jesus and anything else. You cannot worship Jesus if you are really only using him as a tool to get something else that you really want, that your heart desires. And so God in his kindness does the only thing that will work in our stubbornness. He empties our hands, often through suffering. You know, you don't need to persuade a child to drop a rusty nail in order to receive a delicious ice cream. But we as adults, when we're presented with something so much more glorious, we will still hold on to these cheap trinkets to our hearts, fearing what will happen if we let them go. And so Jesus, in his kindness, will often remove them from our hands. So let me ask you a question. I wonder if that is what God is doing in your life right now. What is currently being loosened from your grip? Not to punish you, but to help you. What good thing perhaps you have come to love too much is he having to gently, but perhaps in some senses painfully, remove from your hands so that you can come to him direct. Now my response to having good things taken from me is, no God, not that, I need that. I often think that Jesus doesn't get it when it comes to taking those things that I'm cherishing, that I'm holding on to, even if they are obstacles for me to running towards him. But the reality of the gospel is he does get it. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, describes how Jesus emptied himself, giving up the very keys of the palace of heaven to take the path of the cross. And every moment that we turn to Jesus and says, you just don't get it, He never knew what it felt like to walk into a room knowing that everyone there thought he was nothing. And then we look to the cross and we realize, oh, no, he did. And we say to Jesus, but he never knew what it meant to be so out of control that it felt physically and emotionally vulnerable. That's why I can't let go of that. And then we look at the cross and we remember, oh, no, he does know. And we say to Jesus, yes, but he never really knows what it's like to feel utterly forgotten and uncared for by those who were meant to care for us. But we look at the cross and we remember that he does. Jesus never asks us to lose something that he hasn't let go of first himself. But I guess with that confidence, How do I then approach God, the God who's the king of the universe, the holy one of all? How do I come to him with nothing to prove or nothing to trade? How do I come to him like a child with no transaction to be negotiated? Well, let me read to you this glorious passage from Romans 3, verses 21 to 24. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, this righteousness talked about here is another word for approval, and it's the only approval that you will need, and it means that the perfect record of Jesus' life is now applied to you if you are a believer. And that means when God the Father looks at you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, he only sees the perfect record of his son. And that's why the Father, with a smile on his face from the throne room of heaven, can look at you and say, come. Perhaps for the first time, come. And that's why Jesus, who stands at the right hand of the Father in heaven with delight on his face, can look to you and say, if you've been a Christian for years, but your heart is grown cold and you don't come back, come. And that is why the Spirit of God within you today, as you hear the gospel reminded to you again, jumps in your deepest core and says to you, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and we can take the model of little children and come with messy hands and hands that are empty, not having to prove our worth. We're so sorry how we come with things that we offer to trade, achievements that we list to get your favor, And yet Jesus has done it all for us. And so I pray that all of us, no matter our circumstance, whether it's our first time or a hundredth time, we would turn to Jesus and draw close again. Amen.